A quick update before we start this podcast. We often batch record the podcast. We have to fit them in around Pete's bottling career, so we record them where we can. So it's been a while since we recorded this one. People call me the mailman because I always deliver. But after this episode, they're going to start calling me Nostradamus because I predict the future. Since we recorded this episode, Brian Kelly has gone on to become president, CEO, and surgeon in chief emeritus of the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. Check it out. I think you're going to like this one. Okay. Go, clapper goes. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of the Author Hub C1 Do One podcast. Pete, what are we talking about today? Uh, there's a couple of things going on today. Uh, first, it's about being at the forefront of a new type of surgery. You know, when you're one of those pioneers, one of those early adopters, uh, you know, developing new techniques and everything that goes with that. And it's also about leadership. Um, we're talking with someone who's, uh, you know, we've all been on, like a lot of us have been on leadership courses where you learn like some uh, things, some do's and don'ts and, you know, different techniques of leadership and how to get people back on board. But I think this is another level up. This is more about uh, taking on a big institution with a big pedigree, a huge expectation, uh, an internationally renowned institution where as great visibility, and, but there's, there's a lot of expectation upon you. And how do you handle, you know, your inner imposter phenomenon? How do you handle all those big personalities around you? Uh, and some of whom are obviously going to be very senior to you. So in short, it's about holding the post of surgeon in chief at HSS, Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. Great. Um, just to stop you there, though, I don't think imposter syndrome exists in America. <laughs> <laughs> it's not allowed to. We'll come back to we'll that. We'll come back to that. So listen, our special guest today is Dr. Brian T. Kelly. Uh, I'm not sure what the T stands for. My bet is on Tiberius, like Captain Kirk in no, Star Trek. No, it's not. It's Tom. What's the T for? Terry? Well, it's a, it's a family name. Uh, it's probably not one that you've heard of before. It's Talmage, T-A-L-M-A-D-G-E. We could have and it's uh, it's after my uh, great great grandfather who was a uh, oyster boat fisherman in off the coast of uh, Baltimore. Uh, his name was Captain Talmage Mister. So I come from a line of Misters. <laughs> wow! And uh, Talmages are running the family. We could have guessed for a hundred years, yeah. and we wouldn't have got that. I don't think you would have gotten <laughs> no. that. Um, so my, my dad's my dad's middle name is Talmage. After yep. his grandfather, and mine is Talmage, and my oldest son Connor's middle name is Talmage. So we're trying to right. we're trying to uh, revive the name, get right. it a little bit more uh, popularized. Yeah, love it. I think Tiberius right. was closer than Tom. <laughs> so, so, Tiberius would be better, maybe, maybe better. <laughs> no, no, I'm loving the history. So, Dr. Brian Kelly, aka BK, aka Mister Hip Arthroscopy, aka Mister New York, New York. Uh, he under <laughs> undertook his undergraduate studies at Brown University, Providence, Rhode Island a medical school at Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina. Go Blue Devils. Uh, he did his internship at the New York Presbyterian and then residency at HSS, the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. After he completed his residency in 2001, he did a two-year fellowship at HSS, specializing in sports medicine and shoulder surgery, and then a fellowship in hip sports injuries and arthroscopy with Mark Philippon in Pittsburgh, which we're going to come back to. Prior to starting his practice, he also completed an AO International Traveling Fellowship, where he spent some time in Austria, as well as with Professor Reinhold Ganz, who's world famous, in Bern, Switzerland, studying advanced techniques in open management of hip and shoulder injuries. He's authored over 140 scientific publications, um, and some of the highlight awards include the Charles Neer Award for Excellence in Shoulder Research, which in that sphere is a big deal. It wouldn't mean anything to you. It's a big deal. <laughs> what do you mean it wouldn't yeah. mean anything to me? <laughs> well, you're, you just do maximally invasive surgery. Uh, the Philip D. Wilson Award for Excellence in Orthopedic Surgery Research, the Lewis Clark Wagner Award, 
the Jean C. McDaniel Resident Teaching Award, the Nancy Kane Bischoff Award, AOSSM Excellence Research Award, and the AOSSM Herodicus Award. He is Chief Emeritus of the Sports Medicine Institute and was co-director of the Centre of Hip Preservation at HSS. And he is the Surgeon-in-Chief, a Medical Director at Hospital Special Surgery and a Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery at New York's Wild Cornell Medical College. Almost there. He specialises in sports medicine injuries and the arthroscopic and open surgical management of non-arthritic disorders around the hip. He cares for se- several sports teams and is a head team physician for the New York Rangers, associate team physician for the Giants, uh, also the New York Red Bulls MLS team, several collegiate teams, and he is the orthopedic consultant for the UFC, the ultimate fighting champion. Okay. So I'm hoping he can get us an invite to Vegas. <laughs> so, Brian, welcome to Orthub. Thanks. It's a pleasure being here. My, my dear friend Daniel Nawabi, aka the Golden Boy, aka the Prince of Dubai, aka the Chosen One, for connecting us. I think it was really wary at first. He was kind of weighing up, like, how badly could these jokers impact my career <laughs> with, with the boss? So we'll, we'll do our best. So just behave yourself. Yeah. Well, let's try not get, get try not to get Daniel fired. Yeah. Uh, Brian, what, can you kick us off? What, tell us about some early years. What, what, were, you, were you a medical family? Um, your dad, your dad wasn't an oyster fisherman, presumably. No, my my dad was not an oyster fisherman, uh, but I I grew up uh, in Connecticut, um, and I have one brother, and the four of us uh, really neither my brother nor myself had any interest in going to medicine. Uh, when I went to Brown University for my undergrad, <clears throat> the two primary reasons I went there is because it didn't have a math requirement for calculus. So I didn't have to take math anymore. The best reason. <laughs> and I was, I was throwing the hammer. Uh, I was a hammer thrower in track and field. And uh, like the coach at, at Brown, I had no interest in, in going into medicine. In At Brown, I was uh, my undergrad majors were in, in uh, music and psychology. And then around my senior year, I got hurt. Or I guess my junior year, I got hurt throwing the hammer. So an extra year of eligibility, I, says, I decided to stay there for a fifth year. I started thinking about my future. I realized I wasn't going to have a career as a hammer thrower. And the way things were going, I was either going to be a psychologist or a third grade music teacher because I realized I wasn't uh, actually very talented in music either. So I started looking into, into medicine and decided uh, going to medicine was probably a good idea at that point. But there was no, we grew up in a family. My dad was an oral, oral maxillofacial surgeon, uh, but really, really never pressured us, to either my brother or myself to go into, into medicine. And your mom, what was, what was her background? background? So my mom uh, was a systems analyst. She did, she came out of college, but both my parents went to Brown uh, both, and my brother was at Brown. So we were a Brown family. Uh, and my mother came out, uh, I guess they graduated somewhere around 1961, 62. And she worked for IBM, who sort of Working for IBM when computers were starting to get up and running. She right, became beginning. a systems analyst uh, for a couple of different companies, Pepperidge Farm for a while, and U.S. Um, some news news company. I never was clear what she was doing, to be quite honest with you. And maybe I say she was a secret analyst. agent. I think she was actually, <laughs> and she has the, she definitely has the personality for it. Nobody would have ever suspected her as being one. <laughs> um, and how did you end up at HSS? 
because I was delayed, I, you know, in my, decided my fifth year in undergrad that I was going to go to medical school. And given that the reason I chose Brown was so I didn't have to take science classes or math classes, I was a little bit behind the eight ball. So I had to do all my pre-med stuff my fifth year and then took another year off. Uh, ended up at Duke for medical school. And that's when I really, when I got to Duke, I didn't actually know what I wanted to do in medicine. I just thought it would be better than my current uh, career tra trajectory in music and psychology. I actually think I, I think I went to medical school initially thinking I was going to become a psychiatrist. Right. And the year off between medical school and, uh, I'm sorry, undergrad and medical school, I uh, took a job, went back home, lived in Danbury, uh, lived in Connecticut in Reading, and took a job in Danbury, Connecticut as a caseworker. They had recently deinstitutionalized one of the mental health facilities. Uh, called uh, Fairfield Hills Medical Facility. So there were a bunch of, of um, you know, previous patients who were kind of trying to get in, integrated into a society, and they had a variety of different uh, mental health problems, schizophrenia, bipolar, uh, alcohol, you know, substance abuse, learning disabilities. And when I got there, I was like the 10th person. So there were nine other people who were managing all these people and uh, everyone gave me one of their people. So they, everyone took one, gave it to me and <clears throat> became very clear that everyone took their absolute most challenging thing <laughs> and gave it to me. Dump on the so new they guys. Didn't yeah. Anymore. yeah. <laughs> and so I spent the year working with a really very interesting year dealing with some uh, challenging, uh, uh, you know, socioeconomic issues, uh, issues with mental health and, uh, it was a very interesting and rewarding year, but it became clear to me by the end of that I'm not going to be a psychiatrist. And I always loved sports and realized that this was a potential career opportunity for me going to sports. When I, By the time I got to Duke, uh, I pretty much just saw myself as being a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon. At Duke, you have a – they do it a little bit differently. They do all the didactics in the first 18 months. You start your clinical rotations in, at year one and a half. They have a nine-month period we do research, and so the research was one of the. It was a great opportunity because when you're applying for residency, having some research productivity is is good for the, the application. So I got connected with a shoulder surgeon at the time, uh, Dr. Kevin Spear, who had been a fellow at Hospital for Special Surgery and had done his residency at Duke University, and he was one of the most productive researchers. I spent the year with him and uh, really started to get enamored with the with shoulder surgery and with sports medicine and he was my connection to hospital for special surgery so he uh, was very supportive of me uh, as a medical student and and was really instrumental in my in my choice to come to HSS and did he write you a letter because the letter is like this the golden ticket isn't it in American medical schools he wrote me a letter for sure yeah the yeah. reference but it's like yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, that's the golden ticket that makes it <laughs> yeah yeah so it's Going back to the psychiatry thing, do, do you feel like that you've got this kind of, accepting that you gave it up and you realised that wasn't your number one choice, nonetheless, you've obviously got an affinity for it. Do you feel like you've got like a sort of residual affinity for um, understanding people with mental health problems and it's one of your sort of secret superpowers that perhaps other orthopods don't have? And it's great training for being surgeon in chief, right? Yeah, right. Well, I'm telling you, I, I think I, I can tell you the questioning is leading me down a certain path. Uh, dealing with a bunch of crazy doctors. And, uh, <laughs> I never said anything like that. <laughs> I, I, would, I could read you a mile away. 
I will be honest. The, um, you know, we have a, this, the hospital for special surgery is an incredible institution. And I did all my training here. I, I was a medical student in 1995 and met some of the people who are still here as my mentors and um, spent five years of residency, two years of fellowship, went away for one year to UPMC and then came back, started my practice in 2003. So I've, I've been at this institution since 1995, uh, pretty much straight with the exception of a short period of time in Pittsburgh. And um, it's just a really, really incredibly unique institution. Um, there's a lot of uh, just super successful doctors and surgeons here uh, that are really, really highly motivated. And we're in the middle of New York City, which is a bit of a pressure cooker to begin with. And uh, everyone's, um, you know, competing against one another. And the way that the the uh, business of the of orthopedics is at HSS is that everyone's sort of in private practice for themselves. They're basically we have right now about 140 solo practitioners who are competing against each other for the for the same patient population. And uh, you know, and everyone seems to be able to make it, but the, you know, there's a lot of stress associated with that type of environment. And I think the ability to try to navigate that and try to understand where people are coming from and uh, with a really, really highly successful, intelligent people, uh, I probably should have gotten a PhD in psychology, uh, not just been a year, but it, I, I think there's probably something about it that helps for sure. Yeah. But that, that leads nicely on to the next question, which is, uh, you know, you've been there man and boy, and now you're the boss. Uh, it, it, do you ever, have you ever worried about, you know, not, not having a broader outlook, becoming inst- a, bit, a little bit institutionalized or being a bit narrow focused, say, or, or, be, or being a, a, a potentially criticized for that? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I would say well, that, that was one of the primary reasons I went to Pittsburgh for the year. Right. Was to get away and see a different, uh, a different institution, different way, th- way things work differently. Um, I think there's pluses and minuses to it. I think there's a culture to HSS that it's very difficult. There's a lot of people now that will come in uh, who've had a practice elsewhere and come in, and they're just like, it's a little bit of a culture shock when they get it. Yeah. It's like, this is how you guys do it. I'm like, isn't that normal? And that's just the way you do it. <laughs> Um, so I think there's having the recognition that there's something unique about this institution, having the, uh, is, is really critical. Having a perspective on what it's like elsewhere is really very, very helpful. I think one of the things that happens in orthopedics, particularly if you're involved in, uh, different subspecialty fields, you get the opportunity to meet lots of different places from other institutions. And so I have a very, a good, uh, uh, circle of, of colleagues and friends in different locations, both in the United States and as well as in Europe. And you, I spent a lot of time talking to them about, well, what's it like at your institution? Um, I think it clearly is better to actually have been integrated into other institutions so you really feel it. I would say the, if you're looking at the risk benefit, I think understanding the culture and being here is really critical to anybody's success uh, because of its uniqueness. But I think making sure you're understanding the perspective in the broader context is also very important the thing is whatever the special source is it works um you know despite all that competition as you say and um i spent about a i spent a month there 2014 as part of my winston churchill fellowship i was visiting anna ranawa and bob marks and they're great guys and every time i'd walk down manhattan upper east side there'd be flags flying saying rated number one for orthopedics they'd be on <laughs> flying off street lamps and it's been like being number one in the u.s for orthopedics for like 10 years in a row or something now 
was 13. 13. I'm behind the times. And so whatever it is, it clearly does work. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just interesting, isn't it? You talk about special source because uh, just recently we did, we did a similar podcast with a guy called Sanj Kakar, who's at the, at the Mayo Clinic. And they, again, score incredibly highly. And yet their business model or their, 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 surg- their the model of payment is is salary doctors. No competition, whatsoever, no internal competition. It's, complete, it's completely opposite. When, it's when we look at different business models... I think HSS is on one end of this spectrum and Mayo's on the other. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's it, it's interesting. I think the thing that both Mayo and HSS have in common is you start with uh, with high-quality individuals. Yeah. Uh, there may be some nuances as to how they uh, are able to be successful in different environments, but I think the common denominator is who the individuals are. The other thing that was quite interesting for me was that I basically went from uh, I went from HSS to Parkland in Texas, right? And the patients tripled in size overnight. <laughs> that, was, that was quite astonishing. <laughs> You've mentioned UPMC, uh, your fellowship with Mark Philippon. I'm asking about hip arthroscopy because it's still, ironically, still considered it, it, in certain places. It's still relatively new. Um, I was in 2010 as a resident, and I was assisting a boss who was doing his third fourth and fifth hip arthroscopy oh man all on the same patient all that- on the same hip <laughs> don't ask that's a story for another day and literally read four hours of patient traction with a red screen and it was you know it was painful um so when you went there hip arthroscopy was really really right at the beginning wasn't it so what what where was it at at that time so i'll tell you so when i was a resident and a fellow so i was at hss for seven years mm. And one of the things that HSS is known for as a, as a residency and fellowship program is the volume of surgery that you do. You just do it. There's a lot of surgery going on. So you're in the OR a lot. And I really did love pretty much every surgery that I did. I did two hip arthroscopies in seven years. And after I walked out of the second one, I remember as if it was yesterday saying to myself, that was the worst operation I've ever experienced in my entire life. <laughs> yep, yep. I will never incorporate that into my practice. It was, yeah. it was awful. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know. It took four hours and I don't think I ever saw the femoral head. Yeah. Just red, a red screen. The time. So <clears throat> that was my, that was sort of my initial. And I always was, my plan was to be a shoulder surgeon. And Kevin Spear is, uh, was my uh, connection to HSS from the beginning. He was a shoulder surgeon. I was very interested in, I'd done a lot of shoulder research, no interest in hips at all. And so when I was, a, uh, the beginning of my second year, of my of my fellowship, Dr. Warren, who was the surgeon chief at the time, and I was the fellow helping out with the, with the New York Giants at the time, offered me a job. He said, we'd love to have you come back and uh, maybe you can help out with the Giants a little bit. And and um, I remember thinking, that'd be great. I think there were about 20 to 22 sports doctors at the institution by then. Wow. But like, I'm going to be the 23rd surgeon doing ACLs and shoulder instability and rotator cuffs. Like, <laughs> It's going to be hard to, 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 it's going to be challenging to do that. Um, and my chief, one of my chief residents when I was a second year named uh, Dr. Dave Levine had gone down a foot and ankle uh, fellowship after his, after his residency. And he came back uh, and he was crushing it. He was just doing all the surgery. And I remember running him to the hall and I said, like, how are you doing so well? I mean, you're like, you just started here. It's such a competitive environment. He said, he said, Brian, this is the best place in the world to do orthopedics. Well, if you ever stayed here, just make sure you're doing something different. 
because um, you don't want to do what everyone else is doing. So this is the place where you need to subspecialize. So I was sitting there, I was thinking about that comment. I'm so, so happy. I was at a job. is my dream job. I'm going to be a sports doctor in New York City, helping out Dr. Warren with the New York Giants. And um, I was sitting there reading JBJS over, over um, the Christmas holidays. And for me at the time, reading JBJS was going straight to the back and looking for job opportunities. <laughs> I, I never actually read the articles because they were like, I'm like, oh, God, talk about another reason why, uh, you know, there's osteolysis during cemented total knees. I'm like, mm. uh, so or, or the, fem- the, or the femoral things. tunnel, right? Or the ACL. Yeah, another one. <laughs> exactly. What, should it be at 1030 or 10 o'clock yeah. or 915? I'm like, exactly. So um, I look at and there was this thing, UPMC, uh, sports medicine and hip injuries, uh, Dr. Mark Philippon. I'm like, you know what? I should probably do that because there's got to be something to do it. You, I, I looked at UPMC for medical school and for residency and was always impressed with it. I thought it was an incredible institution. I thought Freddie Fu was amazing. Uh, so I, I said, well, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just do that for a year. So I go back to Dr. Warren. I said, I said, Dr. Warren, um, I'm so honored and so privileged to have this opportunity. I just, I was just thinking I should, uh, probably do a little additional training before I start. So, so I can bring something new to the institution. He goes, that's a great idea. What do you think? And I said, so I was thinking about the hip, hip injuries, hip sports. Uh, hip arthroscopy. He goes, that's great. He said, instead of starting in August, you can start in September. I said, well, actually, it's a year. It's a it's a year long fellowship. He looks at me, and goes, are you out of your freaking mind? He what are you going to learn? Well, you, you need a year to learn how to do that. Are you going to waste a whole year doing that? Not for nothing. I, who is this Mark Philippon guy? I've never even heard of him. And so, um, walked out thinking, how am I going to get around this? And then, you know, over time, there's this thing with Dr. Warren that. He he kind of he thinks about it and then eventually he your your idea can become his idea. And so he came back to me and said, you know what, I, I think you should do a year-long fellowship. I said, Well, I'd already applied and accepted and already we already rented a house. So I'm like, that's such a great idea. I'll look yeah. into it and see if it's possible. So I went to Pittsburgh. Um and Lois, my wife, was pregnant with our first son. And I remember uh she was not happy. She's like, what is wrong with you? Like, like we've been dating throughout residency. We're about to have a kid. She's like, you're about to start making more than $45,000 a year. And we're going to do this for another year. And so, and, and even worse than that is I, I started the, the UPMC fellowship on a Friday. I didn't want to miss the first day. And I was operating at HSS on a Wednesday. So I sent my nine-month pregnant wife out to get the, the house set up for us. Well, I operated all day long with Answorth Allen on a Wednesday, and it was like the best operative day because I, you know, I'd known Answorth since I was a medical student, mm-hmm. so I must have done six cases, and he would let me do everything, skin to skin, and he was just sort of sitting there. We were talking. Then I then I drive myself to Pittsburgh, go to UPMC on Friday for my first day with Mark Philippon, who's one of the most amazing charismatic guys in the world, and I sat there and watched him operate on these hips for 12 hours straight and he let me close the portals and I'm like, Oh my God, this is the worst mistake I've ever made in my life. (laughs) And you know, the, but Mark was such a, like, you know, he was a real on the cutting edge and he was pushing the envelope and uh, it was a really amazing year to really sort of explore what the opportunities are in the field. And um, there's a lot of frustrations with it too, because it it wasn't mainstream and many, many, 
cases it's still not mainstream, uh, but it was one of those fields similar to what Dave Levine had said about foot and ankles, like nobody else is doing it. And shoulder arthroscopy was around this at this point in its development 30, 20 years ago. And the knee was like this 30 years ago. Maybe this is the next frontier for sports medicine. And uh, I did also, because Mark would go away one week a month because he still had a practice down in Florida. So I would uh, take that week and I'd operate with some of the other guys at UPMC. So I got to work with Jim Bradley and, and um, Chris Harner a little bit and Freddie Fu. And so I got exposed to other people's techniques. So it was, it was actually, I'm like, if this whole hip thing doesn't work out, I, I, I got to make sure I still not remember how to do an ACL when I get back. <laughs> um, and, and when you're doing, so you come back as a hip arthroscopist, talk about uh, uh, especially where there's nobody that likes you. All right. So um, <laughs> I'm going to be the hip, the sports medicine guy that's doing hip. The sports guys are like, what? Like sports isn't that. Uh, hip's not a sports joint. You either have arthritis or a groin pull. Like, yeah, what are you talking yeah. about? Or truck and turret bursitis. Um, that's it. Yeah. Right. Arthur, the arthroplasty service is like, yeah. well, you, well, th- th- well, they're a little bit appreciative because they feel like anybody you touch with a scope, they're eventually going to have to hip, replace their hip because you're yeah. going to screw it up so bad. And even the people like Professor Gans, who are really forging the field forward with their better understanding the mechanics of femoral tabular impingement, dysplasia, uh, and r- really gave a lot of the groundwork upon which we were able to build the field of hip arthroscopy. They thought hip arthroscopy was the tool of the devil. So, you know, why would you go to a peep show and, you know, it's 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 interesting because most most you know surgeons who then go into a career when they look back they think i i did this job and i I, it turned out i had i really enjoyed this job i had tremendous tremendous aptitude for this particular surgery or i found this trainer particularly inspiring or uh you know it it was you know all my mates were doing it so i did it as well but you you kind of got into hip, hip arthroscopy because it was the thing that nobody else was doing it, it initially didn't seem particularly appealing and actually grew on you subsequently. Uh, and no one was really <laughs> supportive of me doing it. <laughs> uh, you know, there must have been a point where um, I was just thinking, you know, as you say, still viewed with, with uh, suspicion, right? Some unkind people, not us, say that it's an operation looking for an indication. And the challenge you've got, as you mentioned, is that hip replacement actually works pretty well of all the things that we have. Um, but there must have been a point where you walk out the second hip arthroscopy HS and you go, I'm never doing this. And then and you want to do it. And there must be in a moment where you thought, shit, I can see this. I can do something. I can make a difference. When was that? Was that on fellowship? Well, on fellowship, I realized I can technically do it. Right. Because technically it was more challenging than a lot of the other stuff that yeah. I had done in sports. I wasn't 100% sure I was helping anybody because it, there was still, I didn't have enough follow-up. Uh, it was really in practice when I started seeing patients back. And look, the, the um, success rate of hip arthroscopies early in my career was much lower. That when I started, I was doing everything. I was taking trauma call. I was doing total hips, total knees, multi-ligament knees, shoulder replacements, shoulder fractures, bread and butter, but, butter sports, and, and hip arthroscopy. When I would see patients back, I would be like, every patient I was like happy to see, except for the hip arthroscopy ones. Because I'm like, <laughs> what am I walking into? Like, are they going to love me or hate me? So <clears throat> I think that the challenging aspects of hip arthroscopy it's not just the technical component of it uh but the the nuances of the indication are very very subtle and how do you predict who's going to benefit from it 
Now there's, you know, I, I think femoral impingement as a pain generator in athletes for me has become one of those things. I know that I can help that patient. Um, and I know with a high degree of predictability, that those patients will do well. Um, but there's a lot of subtle ones that I'm still, you still wonder, like, should you push the envelope? Is have it been stability? Is there a little bit too much cartilage wear? Is, is any cartilage wear too much? Um, so I think what I've, what I've evolved to is there is, you can help a lot of people with this technique for the appropriate indication, but there's a lot of landmines. And as we've seen the numbers of hip arthroscopy across the country and the world explode when I was doing it in, in 2003, I think there were about 5,000 hip arthroscopies done in the U S a year. Now there are 200,000 in the U S and double than that, double that worldwide. It's just like, that's a pretty, pretty significant growth in the numbers. Um, and I, I think the challenge that we see is that because there are all these land mines and traps, the, the, um, poorer outcomes, we're seeing them more often than we think is appropriate for certain procedures. Um, but I think there's definitely a role for it. And I think that you can really help a lot of people, but there's a lot of challenges with it. So who's the exemplar patient, the, the, the ideal perfect patient in, in your practice for, for a hip arthroscopy? Who's the, who's the person you go, this is, this is going to be a cracker. Uh, this patient's going to love me. 18 to 25 male with an anterior cam lesion, normal femoral version, no dysplasia, perfect coverage, uh, and motivated to get back with no cartilage wear and unable to play at the level that he wants because of his hip pain. Right. And what's causing his hip pain? Is it, is it, is it a labral tear? Well, there's the cam and pin. Well, it's the cam. Yeah. It's the compression of the labrum from the, right. I stopped using the word labral tear, the term labral tear, but, but with the, with the cam morphology and the skating motion, there's this constant flexion and rotation where the bump keeps on banging up against the labrum and the whole anterior superior aspect of the joint is just like bright red and inflamed. They can't sit, they can't skate. And you go and you fix, you clear out the inflammation, stabilize the labrum, get rid of their impingement morphology on the neck of the femur. You increase their rotation by 25 degrees and they love you. They go back and they play. I have, I have players in the NHL right now who I operated on when they were in high school and they were about ready to quit playing hockey. Like that's that, like, that's the, that's the, the ideal one. So you, you think, and, and in that setting, it's a curative procedure, or at least that that's, that's how you're going into it. Well, cure. I don't know if you're talking cure, meaning that they're never going to have progressive damage to their joint. I think yeah, no, talk, that's, that's a I, bit I of guess, a stretch. Yeah, I know. I guess. I guess. That, I guess that is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm just wondering because uh, I, I always, you know, I was mocking uh, Cash about you know people, when you fix all these ACLs in young people, are you preventing knee arthritis in the future? And I guess it, it's it's the same question here, or do we just don't know yet? Well, I think we know it for the ACL that we're not <laughs> <laughs> easy, easy. <laughs> Um, I, I was actually just yeah. talking to one of the senior surgeons, Dr. Wickwich, yesterday. Yeah. He said, um, I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing a total knee. I said, that's that's great. I said, he goes, yeah, I did her did his ACL 25 years ago. Said, that's a pretty good run at 25 years of it. Look, I think I think the um, the question for hip impingement has not been answered the same way as it has been for hip dysplasia. We do know we do know that there's a mechanical uh, etiology for osteoarthritis, but there's other factors as well. The two types of mechanical factors that we think about in broad terms for the hip, why people develop hip arthritis 
our hip instability, you know, dysplasia, structural dysplasia, uh, maybe collagen laxity instability, hypermobility syndromes, and uh, hip impingement. And I think there's data that, you know, again, much of this data came from Switzerland, where uh, there was a significant reduction in production of, um, uh, of uh, the progression of osteoarthritis in patients who had treated dysplasia with a periastabular osteotomy at 20 years than those who didn't. And if your center edge angle is less than 16 degrees, you've got about a 95% chance of having arthritis by the age of 60. If you get a PAO before you have arthritis, you still have your natural hip at the age of 60, 80% of the time. So there's good data. We don't have that data in hip impingement. And I'll tell you a story about um, when I was about two years in practice, one of my, uh, you know, one of my international colleagues who had become close friends with was Michael Loinig. Uh, he currently operates at the Schulteis Clinic in in um, Zurich, and he was he is Reinhold Gans's son-in-law. So he he was a resident with Professor Gans, and he married Professor Gans's daughter. <laughs> and he, right. um, there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of. He, questions about his <laughs> about whether that was smart or not that he's raised but it worked out for him and so he he calls me up and he says brian can you come to zurich we're, we're doing the annual hip preservation course and i'd like to give you a talk i said right, i'd love to give you a talk so he sends me the program in german <clears throat> i couldn't read it i did notice that my talk was two hours long so i i'm like i'm a, i'm the dumb american who only speaks english so i uh, could you do me a favor and translate it for me? So he sends it back. And the program that I was going to be involved in was preceding my two hour talk was professor Reinhold Gans uh, doing a live surgical hip dislocation, you know, broadcasting the entire audience followed by professor Brian Kelly uh, doing a live hip arthroscopy oh, right. followed by a live debate between Professor Gans and Brian Kelly in <laughs> German on the technical limitations of hip arthroscopy and the management of femoral and impingement. I'm like, what are you create? Like that sounds like a setup for failure. Like, that's, really- that's a stitch up. And so that is a stitch I ended up. up doing it anyway, even though I, I talked to, I remember going to Rose, Dr. Warren who hired me. I said, would you think this is a good idea? He said, no, it's like the worst idea in your life. Like, do it on a cadaver, but don't go. You're setting yourself up for failure. I said, I don't, I, I have so much confidence in my surgical skill. I can do it in Switzerland. Um, the surgery ended up going fine. And I'm not sure what happened in the debate. There was a lot of laughter after every time that uh, Professor Gan said something. I think it was at my expense. Um, but at dinner, Professor Gans came up to me and said, look, that was, you know, this first time I saw arthroscopy done in a way that makes me feel like it's, it's the future. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Professor Gans thinks hip arthrosis future. And later in the evening, um, we, we had a few beers and one of my, one of my colleagues, Dean Lorch had come with me and it was me, Dean and Professor Gans. And Dean looks at, at Professor Gans and says, Reinhold, do you really think this BS is true? Like, this doesn't work, does it? I'm like, you can't say that to Professor Gans. He just complimented me. And Professor Gans answered, I doubt myself more and more every day. I'm like, what is going on? Like, so even the guy who invented it was questioning whether it was real. So, I mean, I think the answer as to whether hip arthroscopy for that patient, that 18 to 25 year old hockey player is curative. I think it's still uh, un- 
unanswered. Yeah. I will say that it is um, predictable in alleviating symptoms and allowing people to get back to a high level of function. Yeah, got it. I know this sounds like a stupid question, but just, just answer it on the basis that just on face value. Do you get... Are CAMs 100% associated with arthritis? Do you ever get like an 80 or a 90-year-old with an obvious femoral neck bump, but no hip arthritis? Yeah, absolutely. It's not that, that It's not 100% a, associated with arthritis. So it's not an inevitability? Yeah. One of the, one of the arguments against femoroacetabular impingement by the arthroplasty surgeons, they'll come in and they say, look, I've got a guy who's got arthritis in his right hip, and he's got, had a bump. And he's got the same bump on his left hip, and his left hip looks fine. You're telling me that that wouldn't happen if you took the bump down. So yeah, I think I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions, and and I think that there are, you know, I think arthritis is multifactorial. I think it's a, what I think is that I don't ever uh, talk to a patient about doing this to prevent arthritis. Right. And okay. in fact, patients come in all the time, and they say, "Look, uh, I got this labral tear. It totally doesn't hurt at all." but I don't want to get a hip replacement in 40 years. So can you operate on me? I'm like, are you crazy? No, yeah. I'm not operating on you for that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the, uh, and the more challenging situation that does isn't infrequent where people will have a symptomatic hip on one side and totally asymptomatic on the opposite side, but they have the same exact mechanics and they'll say, well, after they, you fix the, the side that they're symptomatic on there, they'll, they'll say, well, should we do the other side? Cause I don't want to develop arthritis. And you and you say, well, I don't think we're to the point where we're operating on asymptomatic hips to yeah. change the natural history of a disease that we don't completely understand. Yeah. So I think I think, um, but the, these are what you're talking about are all of the uh, the landmines that exist because it's tempting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll do two of them instead yeah. of one. Yeah. Yeah. But I must. But the reason why knees are better than hips is because I can <laughs> tell you categorically, I've never done a knee replacement on a patient who's had a previous meniscus repair. Right. <laughs> so it clearly works for preventing arthritis. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting you say it doesn't prevent it but but you have you were instrumental in setting up the center for hip preservation and i must say that just want to say by the by that's some genius marketing there you know don't amputate the hip you know preserve it but you but that is suggesting that you can preserve their hips and there is some longevity to it what what was the thinking when setting the, the center up i think um for me it was to, so just so you know from a marketing perspective when we initially, we actually had this sign up. It was called Center for Hip Pain and Preservation. Mm. And uh, Michael Leunig was visiting from Switzerland. He looked at this. He goes, give the word pain right over the door. You got to take that off. <laughs> so we took off pain and just put hip preservation. Um, the, the field of hip preservation sort of, I think, is a surrogate for somebody who doesn't have arthritis that has hip pain. Can you figure it out? Mm. And I think... Which, what I realized is that there's lots of different reasons why people have hip pain. And could we create a comprehensive center where anybody with hip pain, that nobody in our institution who does joint replacements would have the desire to see, could come and we could come up with some sort of solution for them. Um, and so it, it, for me, was important to have open hip surgeons. So we recruited Dr. Sink, Ernie Sink from Colorado at the time who's a, one of the preeminent uh, periastabular osteotomy surgeons and mm -hmm. for sure. also does other hip um, preservation procedures open. Uh, we had a non-operative person, physiatrist, because there's a lot of overlap with hip pain 
and back pain. Lots of these don't need any surgery at all. Physical therapy and, uh, and, and an arthroplasty surgeon who wanted to specialize in young people who needed hip replacements. So what I wanted, the concept of the center was not so much about preserving the hip. It was about getting a comprehensive group of people together who can approach it the right way. Um, this was a, from different perspectives. So uh, Bill Garrett was giving a talk at the NFL Physician Society meeting one year. And Bill Garrett was a, uh, passed away a couple of years ago, was at Duke when I was a medical student. Mm. And so I knew him pretty well. He was a sports medicine surgeon. Uh, he was instrumental in sort of figuring out how to do ACLs. And he was giving a talk on um, something about hip pain. Oh, he's, he was giving it on, on sports hernias hmm. uh, because he had, he had worked with um, Bill Myers, who's taking care of the US, uh, soccer, USA soccer team. You know, it's a lot of these soccer players, these hip and groin problems. So he gave this talk and said this patient had hip and groin pain. So he went to the general surgeon, said, you have a hernia. He went to the um, sport, the, the core muscle injury surgeon. They said, you had a sports hernia, you need a core muscle repair. Mm. Went to the uh, orthopedic surgeon who specialized in hip arthroscopy. He said, you need a hip scope. And then he went to the Switzerland. He went to the open surgeon. He said, you need a surgical hip dislocation plus a femoral <laughs> osteotomy and a PAO. And then he went to the arthroplasty surgeon and said, you just, you just have early arthritis. Come back here whenever you're, it's bad enough. I'll give you a <laughs> And so he goes, the moral of the story is don't go to the barber if you don't need a haircut. Because whoever you go to is going to do what they think is wrong That's with you. Right. Right? They're going to use the tool that they have to fix it. And so the, my feeling about the hip preservation or the Center for Hip Preservation was let's get everybody together so that you're not – the hip arthroscopy is not operating on dysplastic patients. And the open hip surgeon isn't doing surgical hip dislocations on somebody that can be addressed appropriately with an arthroscopic procedure. And we have an understanding of what the core is. If we think this isn't, isn't in the hip joint at all, should we be looking for core injuries? Mm. And we kind of know that back pain can mimic hip pain sometimes. And we have somebody who can really sort it out. So for me, it was more about a comprehensive approach to a complicated area uh, to try to increase the likelihood that we're going to come up with a treatment plan that's going to have a have a good outcome for the patient. Yeah, I thought it was an excellent idea. Uh, Danielle showed me around there in like 2014, and I just was amazed <laughs> by by the setup, by the concept. It was it wasn't it was quite alien, you know. It was basically arthroplasty or nothing at that point. Yeah. What was it like being uh, th those early days where cause a, lo a lot of early surgery is held back by the level of instrumentation, isn't it? As instruments become more. Uh, 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 bespoke, uh, more aligned to the particular nuances of that operation, the actual surgery gets a great deal easier. Were you, were you involved in developing uh, new instruments uh, and or new techniques? I mean, you must have said, what I need is a thing that curves a little bit and does a little bit and looks a little bit left and looks a bit a little bit right. H how involved in that did you get? Uh, so that was one of the first things. One of my close friends from medical school, uh, John Savarese, we were applying for residency at the same time. We ended up going to both going to HSS. Uh, we were roommates together our intern year. And the second year, he just, our second year at HSS is not great. You're like, at least it wasn't 25 years ago. It's probably great for them now. Um, and we were, he, he just, he's like, this is terrible. Like I could not see myself doing this. He would, you're covering the Queens ER and the Bronx ER and you're just getting hammered. 
So he quit. He quits residency and goes to business school in Stanford uh, and then ends up working for um, as the healthcare specialist and device specialist for um, a uh, private equity capital group called Matro. And we kept in touch the whole time. And he said, well, if you ever have any ideas uh, that you want to do something together, I'll, I'll do it with you. Well, I've got the money for it. So when I was in Pittsburgh, and we're using straight knee scopes yeah. instru- instrumentation into the hip joint. And everything's like, we were, we would break like five scopes a day. We'd, we'd have like, <laughs> trying to look around the I, corner. I used to call it the bouquet, <laughs> the bouquet of disposables at the end of a case was like, we'd break like 15 shavers and then Mark would like put them up in, in like a bouquet. It's like proud of them. <laughs> and there's gotta be a better way. So, we started a company called Pivot Medical and uh, got some capital backing from from John's uh, uh, group and then one other group called Fraser Capital. And we developed a whole line of hip, hip arthroscopy instrumentation that uh, subsequently got sold to Stryker. I wasn't a very good businessman at the time because I didn't, I, I hadn't, I learned about the word dilution, hmm. uh, which is every time somebody gives you money, whatever shares you, owned at the beginning gets diluted. So my percentage ownership in the company that I started uh, ended up being like 0.01% at the end. And I'd also <laughs> written away, you know, and they're like, you can either have equity or royalty. Which one do you want? I'm like, I don't know. Can I have both? They're like, no, you can't have both. You need to choose. I said, well, I'll take the equity. I own 70% of the company. Mm. And so I wrote off all my royalty payments and had equity that by the time they sold, it was like diluted down to nothing. But uh, so that part was frustrating. Uh, but what's what, but I still use the instruments. I use the instruments that we invented mm-hmm. to this day. And and so it was, it was really kind of cool to like have an idea and say, well, this is the technical problem we're trying to solve, speak with some engineers, build something. And then you're using it in the OR, they open yeah. up the box and, yeah, so that's really cool. But the pivot sale to Striker was was quite a monumental sale at the time, wasn't it? It was big numbers, if I recall. It was it made news. I think it was about a hundred, hundred, maybe one hundred and ten. Um, yeah, million pounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, slightly different order of magnitude. Uh, but point, remember point point oh one percent. Yeah, didn't go a long way. You know what was hard about the sale was that nobody knew where the field was going. Mm. So like, yeah. why would we spend money on hip arthroscopy equipment when we don't know where the field's going? Um, so it was, it was interesting because I would, I would go on these calls. We're trying to get people to, to either give money to, to, to uh, support uh, the development or later go to companies that wanted to buy it. In the first half of the meeting, you talk about why hip arthroscopy is important. Because like, nobody's like, I never heard of it. Like, what's impingement, FAI, dysplasia? Who cares? Like, why don't you just give me a hip replacement? So part of part of the difficulty in making the sale was exactly what we've been talking about is, like, no, nobody really appreciated where the field was or where it could potentially go. Yeah. Well, Pete's designed some pelvis plates, right, which are going to – Make a lot of money. Selling like hot cookies. <laughs> like hot okay, cookies. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you're going to advise someone in the future, would you advise equity or royalties now? I mean, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, what's the answer? Well, I recently learned you can have both, so I'd say get both. Get both. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. Well, you know me. I value loyalty over royalties. 
You're Mr. Hypothoscopy. The thing's interesting is, so Russell Warren is widely considered one of the fathers of the noble art of orthopedic sports medicine. And I, I mean this in, with a great respect. It's almost like there's like a Russell Warren playbook. Um, and it's almost, and clearly he's, he's mentored you and he's coached you because he wrote about the blood supply of the meniscus. And then you talk about the blood supply of the labrum. And it's interesting seeing some of that. And so was that intentional or pre-planned? Was that from his mentoring? I'm just curious as to, because you've done a lot of research. How did that develop? Yeah, I would say, I would say for sure, Russ Warren has been an incredible mentor for me. Uh, you know, when I started my practice, I uh, my main office where I was working was uh, at New York Presbyterian Hospital, which is our academic affiliated hospital where all the trauma goes. Mm-hmm. And my feeling at the beginning was, I want to I want to have as many different ways to protect me from failing in New York City as I can. So I'm going to take trauma call. I'm going to be doing hip arthroscopy, which nobody does. I'm going <clears> to <throat> do uh, comprehensive sports. I'm going to be working with the team. So I was trying to do all, all these things. So one of them was working at New York Presbyterian, where I saw a bunch of multi-ligament knees and you know knee sprains that ended up being ACLs and shoulder dislocations mm-hmm. that needed surgery. Um, but I but one day a week, I uh, would see patients at New York Pre- at HSS, and I had an office that I shared with with Dr. Warren. I had a I wouldn't say I shared the office. I had a very small desk in the corner of his office. Yeah, in the same location that he was. So I would stop by that office anytime I knew that he was going to be there. And it was you know, I'd bring some x-rays. I'd be like, hey, Dr. Warren, uh, can I show you this x-ray? And let me know what you think. And uh, and so having close proximity to him and being able to bounce ideas off of him uh, was, was a huge advantage for me. I remember seeing patients with him on a Friday and I had this woman who came in with complete atrophy of her gluteus medius and minimus. Huge Trendelenburg gay, couldn't walk, had had a prior like, I don't know, IT band release, big hole in our IT band. And I said, it kind of reminds me of like a atrophy of the supraspinatus and infraspinatus and you do a lat transfer for it. So I go to Russ, I go to Dr. Warren, I said, you think it is like a transfer you could do to provide, you know, that those muscles that are supposed to be doing what they're doing aren't working. Like, what you think I should transfer something? He goes, yeah, just transfer the glute max, bring it up and bring it over. It's got to be something in the literature. Why don't you read about it? It's nothing in the literature except for the, the white side procedure, which was developed for people with total joints that had abductor dysfunction. And so I actually sat down with him and said, so he helped me think through what type of transfer could you do um, that was similar to what you were trying to accomplish in the shoulder. Um, I remember one day I came back and it was probably a, a bad clinic day where where um, patients weren't doing as well. And I, and I said, I said, Dr. Warren, you, you were involved in sort of the, the progression and understanding of, of arthroscopic shoulder surgery. You've invented it. He goes, I, I said, did you ever make any mistakes? Like you thought something was going to work and then it didn't. And then how did you feel about that? He goes, did I make mistakes? Yeah. When we first started seeing symptomatic labral tears in the shoulder, we cut them out because it was the pain generator. We did that for about a year. Every single one of them dislocated. He said, did you feel bad about it? I said, he said, no, I didn't feel bad about it. I just stopped doing it. It's a, so um, he was helpful just sort of to uh, help me think through some of the challenges of being in a field that hadn't, you can't go to the book and read what the right thing is to do. 
yeah, and being okay with it because it, it does it is can be very frustrating at times. It's, fr- it's frustrating uh, to to try to do something new. You can for sure you question yourself. You'd be like, ah, is this? I could be doing things that are already figured out. Uh, and I think being around people who have been through that process gives you the courage to to say it's okay to do it. It's okay to make some mistakes along the way. Just stick to some basic principles and ethics and morals and and um, make sure if, if something's not working, you change. Uh, but it can be challenging. It was very helpful to have somebody who'd been through it help, help sort of talk through some of those issues. And certainly yeah. by, by providing the literature, by, by doing the research on it, you are you're helping a whole generation of patients, right? A whole generation of surgeons. And that's how we develop and advance the specialty. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So you were made chief of sport medicine at HSS at a, a pretty early stage. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So that was, I guess, in like 2014 or so. I'd been, so we'd started this center for hip preservation and, uh, Early in, Tom Skolko was the surgeon chief at the time, and I went to him and I, I said, "Would you consider turning this into a service, a real service line?" And like this is a this is kind of about goes back to the culture of HSS. Like to be a service was like really important because then you could have a chief of the service, and then you had the perception that you would be able to implement change. So he um, he's like, "Yeah, I think it's a great idea." And he makes it a service. He does whatever he signs whatever. And so we were the uh, a service line, hip preservation uh, service. And so I was chief of it. I was do, did that for about five years, and then there was a lot of sort of um, change that was occurring on the on the on the sports medicine service at the time. And uh, I was asked to be become transition to the new sports medicine chief. Uh, it was really challenging because I was in sort of this weird subspecialty sports medicine and most of the things that people were arguing about was you know is it a double bundle acl yeah. or is it uh, <laughs> you know is it a hamstring or a btb or do you need to do a ladder j or can you do it arthroscopically and like i like i know how to do all those things i just don't do them anymore i at that point i kind of transitioned to all hip um i do think that it <clears throat> gave me a unique perspective to look at things a little bit more objectively. So I'm not like, I'm not gonna, I don't have any personal skin in the game, whether ACL repair works or not. Mm, yeah. But I think we have to look at it objectively. Are we gonna, if we're gonna start doing that here and say we do it here, are we following it? Are we making sure that patients are doing okay? And um, so I think it was, I think it was in some ways a challenge, but other ways a help to be sort of on the periphery in sports. And at the same time that became chief of sports, I also uh, took over as head team doctor for the New York Rangers, uh, which has been an incredible experience. I've, you know, I've been doing that for the last eight years. And, um, you know, that <clears throat> being a team doctor in the sports medicine service also helps a little bit just in terms of credibility and understanding some of the issues. Uh, but sports medicine, we have, you know, we, we've got some, it's a big service. Some in many cases it's bigger than most orthopedic departments at the time. We're up to 35 surgeons on the sports medicine service. We we call it sports medicine Institute now, and they're all highly competitive, very very talented, excellent surgeons uh, who have a, sort of their own personal sense of what the right thing is to do. Uh, so how do you how do you navigate that when you've got all these different people is is yeah. challenging. 
Um, but that's part of that's part of leadership, I think. Well, it's interesting because you being a hip surgeon, as you say, the shoulders, his knees, all the other stuff, you're kind of like Switzerland, right? You're just a neutral observer in the middle. No one's going to be gunning for you. Yeah, and that, that, that's why I was wondering, is it helpful that the fact that you're in a comparatively niche specialty with the knee guys all competing with each other and the shoulder guys all competing with each other, at least you you can stand off that a little bit and be, as you say, more objective? Is, do you think that's why, why you, uh, it's, it's, it's a good leadership uh, position? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's some good things and, and bad things about it. I mean, I think... At HSS, any leadership role here, it's very clear you have to be a respected surgeon. Yeah. And I think, like, if you're not a respected surgeon here, uh, you'll get run out of town pretty quickly. For sure. Uh, so it definitely helps with the objectivity. But there's still some question, like, well, what exactly is this stuff? So how do you how do, how do people... Uh, respect what you're doing if nobody else is doing it but they don't understand it so it's a it, there may be a little bit of that they're like oh he just does hip arthroscopy you like you should come see what i do this is real surgery i'm like all right well can't you try one of these they're pretty hard um <laughs> I, I, I think i think uh i think there's a, there's a there's a balance but i think the key i think above and beyond you have to be a respected surgeon i think if you can maintain the respect of the surgeons uh from a surgical technical skill set level and you can be a little bit switzerland at the same time i think that that's a good that's a good combination yeah. it's interesting because one of one of the things that generally happens i don't know about over there in the uk as you get into more and more senior leadership positions most people give up the surgical side and yeah. so you're right you can lose that credibility and without credibility then what you say doesn't carry a great deal of weight yeah that's absolutely the case, particularly in the UK. Is, is that yeah? As is, is you move up, I mean, is is that something you found moving up to uh, uh, surgeon in chief that you've you've had to give up clinical sessions? So I've cut my volume down for sure, and you know the role of surgeon in chief at HSS has evolved over the last 160 years, uh, and the thing that's evolved the most is the size of the institution. Now, even when when Dr. Warren was surgeon chief when I first started, we had one hospital with probably a third the number of oh, operating rooms and you know half the number of patients inpatient. Uh, but they'd stay a lot longer. So now we we've got you know a lot more, but they're running through on twenty four yeah. hours. Now we have a this big hospital. Got 140 surgeons. We're doing 36,000 surgeries a year, and we have 15 satellites in the tri-state area in Florida. It becomes a management issue, so it definitely has changed. So the the amount of administrative time that you have, and the, the amount of sort of brush fires that you encounter, and sometimes forest fires that you encounter, are are high, higher. Um, so I think it's harder to do it as a one day a week type thing, which I think yeah. was possible to do. Uh, you know, 20 years ago. And so now this is, this is a full-time job. And so is your clinical practice. So you're basically two full-time jobs. So you just figure out how do you compress two full-time jobs into a seven, in, into a seven day work week. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but I've, I've decreased my volume. I'm probably now um, I'm probably about 50 or 60% of my surgical volume that I was in 2014 before I started taking on any leadership positions. Yeah. 
I know you you just said a seven day work week. Did you mean five days or did you mean seven? <laughs> I meant you got to squeeze everything out that you can. Yeah, so no, I'm with you. Yeah. Squeeze all the juice. Yeah, no, it's, it's a city that never sleeps. <laughs> yeah. And and what is it like? We're not expecting to name names or anything like that. I, we're not after scandal, but just what is it like uh, looking after and managing the expectations of and sorting out the problems of all of these really, really high functioning surgeons? Um, so I think, you know, I started real and look, I think leadership, you said we read books and I, I have so many self-help books at my <laughs> house right now. Every, every day I come home, my wife would be like, I think there's an Amazon drop off. You get another self-help book. You, <laughs> you think you're going to read it, read about this. Um, it's just experience and, and you sort of evolve over time. And there's some principles you can read about and you can talk to people. But one of the things that I've realized is the surgeon mentality is that there's a start and an end to things. You start a case and you end it. Yeah. You have a patient, you fix them, you don't see them again. And what I've realized about the leadership stuff is they're not defined start. There's defined start points. Oh, I just heard about this problem, but the endpoints aren't as defined. And so, you know, you, you guys are probably like me, you like to, you know, check the last thing off the list before you're done yeah. for the day. Yeah. And you have to get comfortable with, I'm not checking that off the list. There's still like these other things that you have to figure out. So I think part of it is your approach. I think the second thing is your ability to not take things personally and to really step back and really try to look at things as objectively as possible. Look, I've got a really close friend who thinks X is the right thing. I have a new really close friend who thinks Y is the right thing. And if we decide on X or Y, one of my close friends is not going to like me anymore. Yeah. Like you got it. You can't think that way. You have to look at it very objectively and, you know, try to get people to see what the um, other person's perspective is. And look, if you piss people off, then you do, as long as you're doing it for the right reasons. I remember at Tom Skolka, when I started, who had been surgeon in chief um, when I started, said to me, you'll know, you'll know when you're ready to stop <clears throat> when you have more people that hate you than like you. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's, that's a really uplifting thing to think about. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for the motivational speech. Um, so I think, yeah, I think those help. I think the other thing for me that I've realized is the more you can engage other doctors into sort of leadership positions and help you think through things, then all of a sudden, it's not like me against everybody. Yeah, you got a team of people that you're thinking about things with, and you listen to what they say and get different perspective. And even if you don't agree with them, having a seat at the table and being involved in the decisions really goes a long way, and it changes people's uh, approach to things. Um, the 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 worst thing for the culture of any institution for me is, from my perspective, is if the group that you're leading doesn't feel empowered. They don't trust the decisions that are being made and there's not adequate communication or transparency about things. And you just say, no, no, I swear this is the right thing. I, I guarantee it. And even if it is, if, if they haven't been involved yeah. or there hasn't been an adequate transparency, there's a level of paranoia and distrust that exists in any institution that is impossible to overcome. So a lot of it is like get people involved and get them to participate. And you can complain a lot. You, you complain, well, what's your solution? What's your solution? Help me figure it out and and try to engage them 
is has been helpful. Well, look, I'd say the the ability and the privilege to be in this position uh, and try to do you know my my approach is I'm the advocate for the medical staff. We have an amazing institution that uh, provides the resources and the infrastructure for people to have the best environment where they can work and become experts in their in their field or their profession. And everything that I look at is all right, from the perspective of medical staff, what can be done to make sure that clinical care is the highest, that we're focusing on academics, research, education, teaching, and innovation, and that we're doing everything that we can to make sure that all of the doctors feel that they can succeed here better than anywhere else, professionally, academically, uh, and economically. And so, I mean, th those are sort of, and th you just have to have sort of general principles, but it can be really challenging. Yeah. What, what about some of the uh, guys who are older than you? You're, you're, you're going to the job pretty young. Uh, what about some of the people, because you've been there such a long time, uh, there must be people working there who are considerably older than you in years and, and seniority, and they perhaps... Uh, is is do they sometimes struggle with you being you know a bit of a whippersnapper, uh, you know someone who they you know that they, they knew you as a resident. I knew he was a resident, and he was a you know, <laughs> uh, couldn't I, do a hipscape. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're kind of you know, and now they have to listen to you, right? People have trained you, perhaps. Is is that a yeah. problem or is it not? Um, it's probably more of a problem for me than for them. Right. To be okay. with you. Like yeah. I, I feel like I can't tell that you know, Doctor Warren. I'm gonna. <laughs> I can't. Uh, you, so who's going to tell Dr. Warren you're going to pull some OR time from him? I'm like, not me. You know, else that. Why don't you do that? I'm trying to get you more involved. Why don't you try that one yourself? Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, what? one of the things that I did right off the bat is I put together a, a senior advisory committee. I took some of the senior uh, people here and I said, look, um, I want to meet with you guys, you know, once every two months. We'll go out to dinner and I'd love to use you guys. I'd like to just sort of tell you what's going on and hear your perspective on things. And <clears throat> it's the same concept. I think it's a problem for, it's a problem for them if they feel like nobody's listening to them. Yeah. Um, and so asking them for their advice and bouncing ideas off them and hear what they have to say. And then, you know, it's a, they got a lot of good ideas Oh, I didn't think of that, that we should really try that. And you do it and you're like, yeah, uh, yeah I just tried your idea. It worked well. Thanks. Um, I think you can engage them in ways that it makes them feel like they're, you know, not only a part of it, but they're helping me in a way that, that I need the help and uh, they can provide it because they have this institutional knowledge and experience that a lot of people don't have. I'm curious about your MBA because um, at what stage did you do the MBA? Um, I did it in, uh, 2017. Right. And was that with an two, eye? Two years, two years. So that's relatively two recently, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, some people do it as part of their MD, MBA program. And was that with a view to that you knew that the surgeon in chief was a step that you'd be earmarked for and it was to prepare you for that? Well, so I think you're getting a, a, the sense that a lot of the decisions that I make in my life are not really well thought out, starting with my middle name being Talmadge, hammer thrower, music major, psychology major, working in a mental health system. Hey, I'll just go to medical school. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'll try this hip arthroscopy thing for my whole field. Um, so the, I'll tell you, the reason it was not because I'm like, I, I need this. 
there were two reasons that I thought about doing it. One was because uh, I was running such a bad private practice. Like, we're, you know, we're basically you run your own practice. And yeah. I was like, my expenses are terrible. Like my bookkeeper was stealing money from me and I like, didn't have control over it. Like I want to, I didn't take any control. So I thought, you know, I need, I need to just like be better educated about this stuff. Uh, and the second uh, was that I, I, as the service chief for sports, I thought there were things that I could learn about leading high performing individuals. Uh, so I thought leadership, leadership in general was something that was interesting to me. So it was in the back of my mind. And so I remember, so this was in 2017. So I was, uh, I was traveling with the New York Rangers in the playoffs and we were playing Ottawa and I had to travel, you know, it was like two games home, two games away, one game home, one game away. And so I was on the two game away thing, which was about four days. And I was sitting in my hotel room feeling like my whole life was going like just wasting away. To so I called up Todd Albert and I said, well, what should I, it was the surgeon chief at the time. I said, what should I, what should I be doing? I'm like sitting here in a hotel room in Ottawa, which is the worst I've ever seen a, a, a city like this. It looks like this is where you would, the aliens would definitely land here. because nobody <laughs> would see them. Uh, and so I said, should I be doing more in academic society? Should I be doing this or that? And he goes, no, you should get your MBA. And I'm like, all right, sounds better than some of the other stuff. So I literally looked up at the MBA programs in New York City. There was NYU and there was Columbia. Columbia required that you took your GMATs and NYU didn't. So I applied to NYU. NYU it is. Yeah. NYU it is. Yeah. And it's a cool part of the city. I thought it'd be fun. And it's a very, it's a very well-respected executive MBA program. So I ended up sending in my application, thought there was no way this was going to work. I get a call for an interview uh, and I'm like, I'll never be able to make an interview. My business is too busy. They said, do a phone interview. So I do a phone in interview when we're back in Ottawa in the locker room before game seven of the second round of the playoffs. I'm like, Rammer, he's a trainer. I said, Rammer, I'll, I'll just be, I got to make, take this phone call. Like inject a little toward all, do your MBA interview, come back and inject a little more toward all. <laughs> and so I'm talking to this, um, uh, I do an interview in this, in the bathroom stall of the locker room in Ottawa. And we had a great conversation and, and she's like, all right, I think that's all we need. I'm like, that's all you need. Like, that's it. I, like, I'm literally, that can't be a real interview. <laughs> And so then I got accepted. I realize now that it's not that hard to get into the executive MBA program. I was really impressed. At first. <laughs> um, so I will tell you that the two years that I did it, I loved it. It was, it was such an eye-opening experience. It was one of the best educational experience for me that I've ever had uh, because there was, no, I was just really doing it for myself and you would go, it was every Friday, Saturday, every other week for two years. And so you know, I you know, just switched some things around with my clinic schedule. And, um, but you go down there, you put a hat on and a backpack and wear some mm. jeans and you're totally anonymous <laughs> and you sit in the back of the classroom and you just like soak up this knowledge. And, and I didn't care whether I was just literally doing it for me. And it was really, really gave me some perspectives I didn't have. And I think in terms of the leader in, in leadership roles, particularly at an executive level, I don't think it actually, gave me some massive insight into how to Mike, you know, go in and really look at the books and really say, Oh, here's what we need to do. We need to change it from this to that. Yeah. But it gives you a vocabulary uh, so that when you're seeing things that don't make sense, you're not afraid to say, well, could you just explain that a little bit more? 
and you're not afraid to do it. And they think that you got your MBA and you actually might know something. So then they have to go in and give you a little more detail. So I think it gives you uh, it's like sort of the power of knowledge, but it's really not that much knowledge. Uh, but it gives you a, a, a different perspective and a different lens to think about things. But MB, MBA, it's it's hard yakker. It's hard work, isn't it? Um, uh, I've had a number of colleagues, I've not, not done it myself, but a number of colleagues who've done MBAs, gone off to do them, and they drop out in the first year or first six months because of the workload, they're doing essays, assignments, and they just can't handle the workload. Maybe it's because they were going in for the wrong reasons or it just didn't didn't suit them. Uh, but uh, you said you loved it. Um, how did you manage that workload? Or did it not feel like work? It was. No, it did. It felt like work. I mean, there, there's <laughs> yeah. some foundational courses like, you know, accounting, microeconomics, macroeconomics, corporate finance, and, you know, fi- fi- and it's like a lot of, like, I didn't even know how to push the buttons on the calculator. <laughs> it's like, I couldn't even figure out how to turn it on and off. Um, I mean, but, and, and going home and doing homework yeah. was like, yeah. and, and then having these, you know, a lot of the MBA is group things where you've got, like, you're going to, pair up with yeah. four other people and you guys have to come up with a company idea and work on it together. And you work with four people that you may like or not like, but you're like, um, like the apprentice. we got to meet. Yeah. And then, and then, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it was, it was, it was definitely extra work, but I felt, I felt like it was fun. Like I felt guilty mm. when I was there. I was having too much fun. Right. I remember before I was taking this corporate finance final exam as a three hour test. And everyone's like, like stressed out and they're like studying. And I'm like, do you see that thing that guy wrote on the, you got to put your phone away for the next three hours and nobody can contact me. This is going to be the best three hours of my life. (laughs) I can talk to anybody for three hours. I really want to do an MBA, actually. Do you? I think when, when this author hub thing goes tits up, I'll have the time. But, but my guilty pleasure is, so like, like when the wife's not looking, I'm under the sheets, I'm in the bathroom, I'm looking at MBA programs. So what are you doing? <coughs> Nothing. I'm, I'm looking at porn. <laughs> Don't ask. <laughs> it's I would tell you, I, I would say, if you even think that you want to do it, you should definitely do it. Yeah. I because I, I just found to be real. Look, I, I think as, as surgeons, particularly busy busy surgeons, you miss out on like 99% of the world. Like yeah. I'm, I'm sitting there in this MBA class and they're talking about like why Blockbuster died. And I'm like, when did Blockbuster go under? I just, I was going to go rent a VCR. Tape tonight. <laughs> I'm like, you missed all, you miss out on all these things. Like yeah. Radio Shack doesn't exist anymore. Seriously. What happened to Radio Shack? <laughs> um, and I think there's like, and there's a whole different way of looking at, looking at the world and it puts things in perspective about what we're doing. And then, and then I think when it comes to healthcare, you look at what what other industries have done uh, in terms of integrating digital and technology into their ecosystem, improving efficiencies. And you know we're still looking at you know X-rays on a on a X-ray board with a light box. And you know there there's so many things you're like if the banking industry is able to do this, we it's the same problem. It's about maximizing efficiency, mm. making sure the data is right and art, like integrating artificial intelligence into decision-making. I mean, there's, yeah. there's so many things that we could do uh, that have already been done in another industry. We just apply them to healthcare. We could, re- we could really fix a lot of the problems that we deal with. Yep. Building on that business um, development that you've talked about there. Uh, so the Cleveland clinic um, have expanded to multiple sites in the U S they're in Abu Dhabi. They've just come to here to in the UK now in Her Majesty's London. 
Mayo Clinic are always looking to expand. HSS has a massive global reputation. It's right number one for orthopedics. What are the plans for HSS's expansion beyond New York, beyond the US? Are there any? I think um, expansion, I mean, here's, here's, and this is one of the things we talk about all the time, like, you know, grow or die. Yeah. Well, then, then people are like, well, it's pretty good the way we are. Why do we need to grow? Mm. Um, so we've grown massively over the last 20 years. We've grown to these 15 satellites and we have some uh, things we're doing in Florida. We've, we've explored uh, the UAE. We, we actually went, to, I went to London a few years back looking at anything we can do in London. You know, I think with the, the consolidation of healthcare that's currently occurring, at least in the U.S., is that massive hospital systems are buying hospitals, and they're they they're, we're going to buy all we're going to buy ten hospitals, and own all these patient lives, and employ all the doctors, and that's our solution to healthcare. Uh, but then it's such a mucky system; it's hard to navigate. And um, in New York City, twenty years ago, there were about a hundred independent hospitals. In twenty twenty two, there's five hospital systems and two independent hospitals. One of them is HSS and the other is Memorial Sloan Kettering. But the only two hospitals that haven't been merged merged into into a a hospital system. And I think one of the keys to our ability to maintain our our relevance and our ability to do things a little bit more with more agility is maintaining your independence. And the only way you can maintain your independence is you got to expand um, you have to do it in a way that uh, doesn't compromise brand, and that's very challenging to do. Yeah. Um, when I think about what HS, what made HSS special when I first got here, it was uh, it was a boutique Upper East Side hospital. It was like a one of a kind. Everybody knew each other. Um, it was much smaller. It was it was a great working environment, and I think what what our what sort of my thought process is what. HSS has to do to expand is we need to we need to become boutique at scale. We need to recreate that same high quality, high touch type of environment for patients, but do it in more locations. We'll expand market share. We'll have different revenue streams, and you have to you you have to penetrate different markets. Expansion we've learned isn't and you you say we have a massive reputation globally. We actually have a very specific reputation. Hmm. Uh, other orthopedic surgeons know who HSS is. I bet there's nobody, unless they've actually been to HSS, who's not an orthopedic surgeon that's ever heard of HSS in London right now. Yeah. And you know, we we made this mistake when we expanded to Connecticut. It's 30 miles away. Everyone knows about HSS. But we're gonna plop HSS down in Stanford, Connecticut, and we're gonna run all the locals out of town. Well, there's lots of local uh relationships and the, the referring doctors still send them to the local people. They're the ones they see in the grocery store on Sunday. And, and um, so the reputation is good from a surgeon physician standpoint, but it doesn't really penetrate to the consumer or the patient. And so what we've realized that our expansion uh, is really necessary to maintain our autonomy and ward off the enemy forces of hospital consolidation. Um, but it can't be done on a reputation and probably needs to do with partnerships hmm. uh, with other with people who have the local penetration. And so that's kind of the way we were thinking about it. Right. And will, do you ever see a time where HSS will be 
beyond orthopedics and involve other medical specialties? I think one of the things, again, this debate about what's more efficient in healthcare, specialty hospitals or multi-specialty hospitals. Hmm. Um, I think specialty hospitals is a unique benefit to them. Um, There's some challenges too. We've had uh, in the last year, we've had three different college teams that we take care of say, we actually need a multi-specialty hospital because it's great. We love the orthopedics, but we need a OBGYN person also. And we also need a cardiologist and all you are is orthopedics. Um, so there's something missing from a, from a specialty hospital as well. Um, look, I, I think that close that we have a neurology department. We have a rheumatology department. We have pathology department, a radiology department. We have yeah. um, subspecialty medicine departments. We have psychiatrists. We have endocrinology. I mean, we have a few things, but they're all sort of built around musculoskeletal. Health. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're gonna not gonna run your aortic valve replacement center at HSS. Yeah. I recently had a conversation with a neurosurgeon who said, Well, because we want to bring neurosurgery in as a in partnership with the orthopedic spine surgeons, because most spine departments now are neuro and ortho. Yeah, and they work even now well yeah. And we don't have we for a long term, if we've we're never hiring neurosurgeons are terrible. They don't instrument the back. They don't know what they're doing. Well, now they're there's it's important. If you don't have a neurosurgeon in your spine program, people are going to go to the neurosurgeon and not not stay here. Um, so I was talking to this neurosurgeon. He's like, we will, we'll bring your our whole department there. And I'm not sure if we're ready for a brain surgery. Like I don't want to do brain surgery at HSS. Yeah. He's like, well, actually, like there's could be very synergistic. Like, you know, what some of these neck surgeries, like you yeah. go a little higher than the neck, get into the brain. Um, I think there's, there's some things if they're, if they're, um, if you can make an argument, how they complement what we're doing, which is a musculoskeletal hospital, I think we will grow those areas, but I don't think we'll ever be a multi-specialty hospital with departments that are taking care of sort of the diseases and all the different uh, specialties. Obviously, spent a lot of time uh, over the years uh, hanging out with 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 sports teams. Uh, you talked about that the, the uh, working with the Rangers. What what is what is the thrill with being a team doctor? What's what's the fun aspect to that? What's the what's the the buzz? So I've I've been involved a lot in football uh, for my first twelve years. I with the Giants were helped out with the Giants, and um, now for coming up on ten years, I've I've been with the Rangers. Um, the, the hockey team for me is like such an amazing environment to be a team doctor, the football. I mean, and it's a little different. I was like an assistant team doc. I wasn't really in charge of making decisions. It's a much bigger team. It's a much bigger stage. Um, but hockey is like, you develop real relationships with the players, uh, where they trust you in order to help them, you know, get through things. I mean, we've had some really incredible issues that have happened in my first year our, our goalie got hit in the neck with a puck and had a carotid artery dissection that i had to diagnose and you know be, you know you know change the would have changed the his his life if we didn't diagnose it we had i got hit in the head and had a subarachnoid hemorrhage it's not necessarily about acls or hip impingement or shoulder instability yeah it's about it's your opportunity to be like a 
a proper doctor, sports medicine doctor, a pro- <laughs> yeah, a real doctor. Real doctor you know, yeah. We had one of our guys got hit in the neck the other night. Took a slap shot right into the neck. Jeez! I'm like, oh my god! I guess they're like, The only thing I could think is, can you breathe? Can you talk? <laughs> Raise your hand if you can talk. And um, get me a biro. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I was thinking, I'm like, and it was like right below is is uh, uh, trachea, and I mean it's one of the things in hockey you you, you worry about that. You know, yeah, puck into the trachea crushes the airway, and you can't breathe, and you got to you know you do crike crike on him and i'm yeah. like where's the knife like where, like where's it i'm yeah. like, on myself I'm like it's a soft spot yeah. right there right? Yeah. i can only do it on, i can only do it on a sheep i can't yeah. do it on a person yeah but these guys but, got these but, guys got thick necks right they got yeah. necks like tree trunks yeah. haven't they it's yeah. not it's yeah. not well, and the thing that made him feel like it was all right was because he trusted if i said he's good he's good yeah and i think that's for me is like so it's a bit of a responsibility when there's bigger issues but to be able to develop a relationship and trust with players and and kind of help them through different things is like it's just a really fun um, uh, experience. And the and the other thing is the relationship with the trainers. I mean, you develop a really very special, unique relationship with with the trainer. And if you have a if you have a good trainer doctor relationship, you know, but but you, you're always on the same team. It's it's a really special, unique uh, type of relationship. You're also into uh, UFC as well. Uh, are, you, are you sports doctor for that or, or just, just in, as an enthusiast? Um, so I think the bio was a little off. So I was. I, so we started the relationship. Oh, strike me down uh, now. Me down. <laughs> seven, the bio was total ago. shit. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that you said was actually true, but I didn't even know. It sounded so good. I was like, wow, that was Oh, aren't I doing well? <laughs> I, sounded com- I, I sounded confident, right? That's half the trick. You did, and all I could think of, I'm going to have to give my marketing agent a pay raise. That was perfect. <laughs> he said he was just going to write a short bio and give it to you guys, and that's what he came up with. <clears throat> no, so we started the relationship with the UFC about seven years ago, uh, and it was it's a it's a really interesting relationship. Um, you know, when at the time there were a lot of people who said, "Do we really want to get involved in this?" Like people trying to kill each other in an octagon. Yeah. <laughs> like, aren't we supposed to be like helping people? It was I'm considered like, violent and antisocial until quite recently, wasn't it? It wasn't on par with boxing. Well, it is pretty. Well, it was, it was illegal. It was illegal in New York until until UFC 205, which was when we. That's what where the idea came because we'd yeah. see these athletes. They come in and they'd have some problem, and they didn't realize they didn't have any sort of place to go yeah. they have a, a team doctor or the he called the cage doctor he's called the cage doctor <laughs> jeff davidson who's an amazing guy he's an er doctor in las vegas and he travels to every event and he's their real team doctor mm. we're the orthopedic consultants for them right okay and develop a good relationship with them and now you mentioned bob marks before bob marks and daphne scott are the you know official uh orthopedic consultants for them right now but yeah, we started. I started the relationship with them about seven years ago, and and uh, tried to get some more people involved in it. I know it's outside of your expertise a bit, but just uh, just what's the deal with head injuries? Because 
I, I know that in American football, about four or five years ago, I think, or maybe I may have not got my times wrong there. Longer. There was there was a big hoo ha about guys getting concussions and then having late uh, sequelae of that, and uh, the players sued the. Um, uh, there was a big class action lawsuit. And the same things happened in rugby in the UK. Uh, the uh, uh, British RFU has been sued by the players or is being sued by the players of these people who had uh, repeated head injuries back in the day, which were kind of ignored and pay, pe- people stayed on the, on the pitch. And now uh, they're having uh, some early dementia symptoms. What's the deal with UFC and indeed boxing in, in, that, in that respect, where you're actually purposefully going for the head on a, on a pretty much fight-by-fight basis? What, what's, what's the, uh, is, is, this, is that going to end up going the same way, or do people sign disclaimers, or really, what's the that's deal? A, that's, a great, that's a great question. It's one of those questions that um, I've been wondering for a long time. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the class action lawsuit in the NFL, um, led to we used to in the NFL line the guys up and give them toward all shots. You'd have 25 guys to get their vitamin T. And you, all, the only question would be right side or left side. And, um, and you just like load them up and inject them as a result of that lawsuit. Part of that lawsuit was that the indiscriminate use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories right before contact sport like that increased the risk for bleeding into the brain. And so as a result, we had to stop using really any medications in the training room. Um, now, the year that that was decided, you know, the first game of that season, there were 20 guys outside the training room asking for their Toradol injection. It's like superstition so like, by this point. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't probably. possibly I play. Helps, actually, I think it makes them feel better, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we said, well, we can't do it. The Players Association sued the NFL because they said we were using it too much. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I won't sue. Just give me the tort injury. <laughs> and so we stopped, we stopped doing it. Uh, I think the sensitivity to head injuries uh, became very public in the NFL. Mm-hmm. It's become very public in the NHL now. Right. And there's a lot of scrutiny to it. Uh, and there's, there's, um, you know, independent neurological consultants who are the, the spotters and you can get called down for a mandatory or discretionary evaluation where you have to take them out of the game. Uh, we had an incident that just came up, uh, in this season where our goalie uh, fell down, uh, he wasn't hurt. He, he like fell down and was trying to draw a penalty and there was a mandatory uh, removal from the game. It was an important game taking a goalie out with three minutes left in the third period um, and then putting the warm up guys like a guaranteed way. Just want you just guys take the win. We'll take the loss. <laughs> um, you know, but it, but they're like timing how long you're, making sure you're doing it and you have to like follow all the rules. So it has, and I think we take all take it very serious and the players do as well. They're like, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to have this uh, CTSD yeah. when I'm, when I'm older and end up like Muhammad Ali. Uh, so your question, your specific question is what about the UFC? Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know. Cause we're just orthopedics. So, um, but it's, <clears throat> it's really a good question. We do a course every year, and I think all of the sports doctors here are really sensitive to concussions. And you, like it, it's like the old school, you just got your bell rung, go back in, toughen yeah. up, rub mm. some dirt on it. Like that's not like a good, that's not being a good doctor anymore. Um, and so we do a course every year called a professional sports medicine conference where we get all of the medical teams for um, all of the professional teams that we take care of in the New York area. 
we bring the guys down from Boston who we have a close relationship. So the Patriots, the Red Sox, the, um, the Bruins, we get the Philadelphia docs and we get some other people from across the country. It's a really interesting course. And the premise was what's different about that injury in hockey than it is in baseball. Yeah. And Cause you treat them maybe a little bit differently. The management injuries are different. And so it's a really interesting course. We get all these teams together, all the medical teams together and talk about things. So two years ago, I thought it'd be a great idea to, we have a keynote speaker. That's a big draw. So I get Jeff Davidson come down the cage doctor yeah. Yeah. and give us a talk. He gives us his talk. It's like, he must've seen like some crazy like shit. Eyeballs hanging out of his head and his ears <laughs> cut off. And yeah. he, we were thinking about calling a fight, but he was only unconscious for two minutes and he could still breathe. So we let him play and look around like, oh my God. <laughs> Is this, and you see some of these, like, you know, there's sensitive doctors and less sensitive doctors, but yeah. even the less sensitive ones are like, oh, this is a, like, we don't, this isn't medicine. This is like disgusting. Uh, and like, like Mad Max uh, or something. <laughs> so I, it's a, it's a very good question. You, you yeah. wonder. Now, when you talk to Dana White, yeah. Uh, he made the statement at one point that the UFC is the safest professional sport out there by yeah. this criteria. Nobody's ever died in the octagon and people have died on every, people have died in the ice rink. People have died in the NFL. Mm. People even died playing baseball. Yeah. Nobody's ever died in the octagon. I didn't do any fact checking on that, but there's that, that may yeah. or may not be true. <laughs> it seems like uh, a bit of the, a reach. Uh, yeah. But the, um, you know, at the end of these fights, so I will go to some of these fights and at the end of the fight, uh, both athletes go back. You go back with Jeff, and um, they're literally separated by a curtain. And, like, they've just been going at each other for, like, 20 minutes, mm. brutally. And now you're, in, now you're in, like, the eval area, which is, like, in the, you know, in the back room somewhere with a curtain between the two. And you're doing, like, a – got to do a full scan. You do a neuro scan, orthopedic scan. Yeah. And um, – you know, what I found was that, uh, you know, 25 to 50% of them at the completion of the scan, you just dumped them into the ambulance and they went straight to the ER and where they, I mean, so it's a really, it's a rough sport. Yeah. yeah. And, and if they kick off in that eval area, it's up to you <laughs> to hold them apart, right? <laughs> They're pretty tired by then. You've got a hammer, you've got a hammer, you're swinging on a... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, um, no, that's fascinating. The, the thing I want to ask you was... Um, is it, so you, I understand you're a fan of MMA. Is it true right. that you've got a wrestling ring at home and you invite fellows over and you fight them? <laughs> Is this true? It can't be. <laughs> right, so, so first of all, I like to, I, I do that as a form of exercise for myself. For sure. It's not a wrestling ring. It's a dojo. A dojo. Apologies. A dojo. No, a dojo is a spiritual place. Built, built, in, the, built in, in sort of the Japanese... The, the authentic Japanese style with the screens around and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's authentic dojo. Love it. And, um, I have invited people over to experience the, the dojo before, but it's not me fighting them. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's more, it's more of a, it's all, yeah. it's all for exercise. It's a very, it's a, it's a great form of exercise. Okay. Yeah. Now I just saw a photo of you once somewhere of you and Bob Marks in, in a ring. And I was just wondering who would win out of you two. <laughs> You'd fancy yourself getting Bob, right? I mean, he can hardly walk. He's got, his, he's got, 
after he gets his second hip replacement, we'll see. He'll, yeah. he'll be a little <laughs> more mobile then. <laughs> getting to wrap up the, the conversation but just talking about your plans for the future you, you've come to this like like top end leadership position at quite a young age where, where does that we talk you were talking about endpoints earlier and we have a start point and end point and and you've kind of got used to the the idea that endpoints are, are less definite than the start point where, where where's the what, what's the next stage for you uh, will you carry on in, as, as commander in chief for a bit longer or for, for an indefinite period? Or do you have like a, a, a time when you'll say that's the end of that and I'm going to move on to the next thing? Or how does it work? Well, the position is five years. So I'm in, finishing my third year now. Right. I presume I have two more years unless uh, unless I get run out of town. Um, the But I look, I've looked at my like, here's what here's what was always fascinating to me. And it's something I tell fellows when they start their practice. Our whole lives have always been done in sort of like four to five year increments. Yeah. Like yeah. you go to high school for four years and you're like done yeah. with that. Now I'm going to go to college. You go to college and like done with that. Now I'm going to go to medical school. Go to medical school. Then I'm going to residency. Done with residency. And do a fellowship. Done with that. Mm. And then yeah. become an orthopedic surgeon. You're like, holy smokes, I can do this for the next 30 years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So like, well, like I can't, I've never done anything for more than four years ever <laughs> yeah. in my entire life. And so I've looked at my, the 20 years I've been in practice as there've been phases. I think of them as phases. There's been like the beginning phase, which is just be, do as much surgery, do everything you can just you know, feel comfortable being a doctor. All right. I'm going to do the, all right, I'm going to start to focus on the hip and build hip preservation uh, to a sports medicine phase uh, to a surgeon in chief phase. And it's actually worked out quite well in terms of the natural things that have happened uh in all of your educational training um so i would say i think you know it's this is typically a five-year role with the option to renew it for a second five years if the board wants you to keep doing it and if you want to keep doing it so i have a couple of years to figure out if i could do something for 10 years because i haven't done i haven't done anything for 10 years ever yeah, but when you when you rack up each year and you rack up and you rack up and each each so each five every five at the end of those five year increments you sort of move up to the next thing. Could you envisage a time where you just step back down into rank and file? You just become one of the guys who's you know back down to where you were like, like five ten years previously. Yeah, because so far it's just been up and up and up, hasn't it? To a more and more um, seniority. Yeah, I mean, I think I think of it. Um, I think there's two ways to think about it. For sure, I, I want to be able to do that if if that seems like the right thing to do. Um, on the other hand, there, there's this uh, book uh, called The Second Mountain. A guy named David Brooks wrote it, and it talks about this whole idea of, um, he calls it the moral perils of meritoc- meritocratic society, where everybody's trying to like go up the ladder yeah. And when you achieve one thing, and this is where all like, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you're a victim to this. You're like, all right, I got that. And I want to do the next thing. And then you got that, you got to do the next thing. And you feel like it's, you're, it's an achievement oriented approach to things. And his argument is that you'll never be happy in life if that's the way you're going to think. Because every time you achieve something, you immediately make that baseline. Now you got to achieve the next yeah. thing. You just described. You just described cash perfectly. <laughs> He's got a solution to it. It's called the second mountain, 
And that's the first mountain. And at some point in your life, you want to get off the first mountain, get onto the second mountain. And the second mountain has more to do with being a part of something that is more than just your own personal advancement, but you're part of a cause or, and the best example, and the easiest example is when you become a father, all of a sudden yeah, you care about your kids. Argue. You should care about your kids more than you do about yourself. I mean, I think most people do. Hmm. Um, but then you talk about like uh, leadership positions. You're like, you have to do it because you want to figure out a way to make something bigger than you could ever be better. And you're a part of that. And I guess my goal is to, is to um, evolve into that second mountain approach where, where I feel like it's not about what my achievement is. It's more about being a part of something that's kind of cool and good to be a part of and, and having a role and making it better. I think that, that for, and he claims the book claims you'll be happy once you do that. So I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> Let's see what happens. I'm going to order that book now. I'll get it, I'll get it on Amazon now. Um, it's another of those self-help no. books, isn't it? Your wife is like I mean, racking yeah, up on I the mean, bookshelf. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, well, I'm really one at the moment called um, 4,000 Weeks because the average lifespan is 4,000 Weeks. Um, and when you look at it in that way, you think, gosh, you know, yeah, there's, the, the time is finite, right? And I mean, you yeah. really got to um, focus on what's important and what's real. Yeah. Um, I, personally, I think you're going to run for Congress next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, it's, um, thank you very much for joining us. It's been fantastic having you. Yeah. I absolutely love chatting with you. I've learned a lot. So having you on has been a real honor. So thank you very much. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, no, it was fun. And, and it's, uh, I think it's cool that you guys are doing this. We're just a couple of jokers who end up being in this position, but it's it is it is really fun chatting to people who are who have got interesting lives. And the thing is, a lot of these questions are, aren't um, for interview purposes. I actually want to know what to do in my own life. That's right. Kind yeah, of that's right. Yeah. I don't have to go and read all those books. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Awesome. Sorry, we've we've totally made you late for your next thing, haven't we? Thank <laughs> Sorry you. about that. Thank you. Love it. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers. We'll see you guys.